Continuing the same psalm, the psalmist says, Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breath out violence, uh, breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had uh, believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He says, teach me right up front, indicating, if nothing more, uh, again, the uh, antithesis of what's coming out of the mouth of his adversaries. What's coming out of the mouth of his adversaries is foul, wrong, uh, disheartening. It's all the bad things. And he's saying, teach me that I may say the good things, because it's the good things that are going to guide my path and bring me both great joy and defeat my adversaries in the end. Clear as, it should be clear as a bell, what he's saying here. And so uh, in order to do that, we've got to be taught. We've got to be taught. We have to study. We have to appropriate. We have to meditate. And in the end, we have to, in the right sense of the expression, be one with Christ and his truth that we may walk in his ways. And so as Joshua comes up and preaches, he's going to preach God's word. As he does so, I would encourage you and I to listen faithfully, carefully, with anticipation of a time when we'll meditate upon it and do what is right. Amen. Good morning. Good to be with you all again. Uh, bring you greetings from Reformation Church down south in Elizabeth, Colorado. I'm glad to bring the word to you today. We're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 9. So I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. As we turn to 2 Samuel 9, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now the word of God from 2 Samuel 9. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? 
And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servants, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Mekah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated, and let's go to the Lord in prayer as we look to this passage now. Almighty God, we do thank you that you have given us this opportunity to read your word, to, to ponder it, to apply it to our own hearts and lives. And we ask, Lord, that you would teach us now, uh, give us insight, understanding. Uh, Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word, uh, that we might be uh, benefited by this word, uh, built up in faith and in love. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, here we have one of the most memorable and moving stories of First and Second Samuel. It's probably the favorite of many because of the love that is displayed uh, by David. It is perhaps David's best recorded moment, or at least among them. And being that in two chapters after this, David will be at his worst, it is encouraging to us to see David at his best. And he's only at his best because of the grace of God that is at work within him. And it's really a remarkable story of kindness that David shows. Of course, the greatest story, which is not a fictional story, but a true story, the greatest story of kindness in all of history is the immeasurable kindness of God displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no greater demonstration of kindness, mercy, and love than the gospel. And this narrative of David's life is reflective of that story as well. It's reflective of the grace of God and the kindness of God to us in the gospel. There's so many parallels that we could draw. People come to this story and they, they can see it almost like a parable. It's not a parable, it's a true story. But there's so many parallels we could see between uh, the gospel and then the story of David and Mephibosheth. It's just, it bursts forth with, with parallels for us and so many lessons in that regard. And what we're especially going to focus on is that phrase, the kindness of God, as it's translated in the New King James. And as we do so, I hope that we come away with a greater depth of appreciation for God's immeasurable kindness to us. And secondly, that our, our lives would more and more reflect the kindness and the steadfast love of God towards one another. So as we come into this uh, chapter, I want to set the stage for you of where we are at in 2 Samuel. We don't have the benefit of going through the whole book uh, this morning. Uh, but uh, at this point in 2 Samuel, you should understand that there has been a long process unfolding as David has taken the kingship after Saul. There was a civil war that played out for many years. David reigned in Hebron. And as he did so, there was battles with Saul's uh, descendant, uh, Ishbosheth. 
and the general of Saul, Abner. These, these men had waged war against David's kingdom, and eventually uh, that came to an end. And during that whole period of civil war, we were given a very important detail. And that detail is found in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles there and you'd like to see it, or it may be on the screen here. I forget we have the screen here. So uh, 2 Samuel 4 verse 4 is the passage. And in this passage, we're given this hint. It was a preview by the author of what was to come. It says, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. And that's all we knew about Mephibosheth up until we get to chapter 9. The author just wanted us to know about this individual. And this young man, uh, when uh, the battle had taken place, uh, when Saul and, and Jonathan died, apparently Mephibosheth was dropped at age five. And so he was a paraplegic in both his legs. He was un- unable to walk. And now many years have passed we, this point. And Mephibosheth has grown up, but grown up crippled. He's living uh, in hiding across the Jordan River uh, in this place called Lodabar, far removed from the kingdom, probably afraid of what would happen if David discovered his whereabouts. And so all these years have passed. David has built up his palace in Jerusalem. He has established himself there. Things are going well for David. He has peace. Now, the question is, will David remember the promise that he made to his friend Jonathan all those years back? And that's exactly what he does. Uh, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 20, all the way back to that book, we find in 1 Samuel 20, verses 14 through 15, this promise that David had made to his friend Jonathan. And it said this, You shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And so now the day has come to test that promise. Will David keep his commitment to Jonathan? And so as we return to the opening verse of 2 Samuel 9, beginning in verse 1, we see David remembers his promise. He asks the question, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? We don't know what occasioned David's question. Apparently, it was nobody that came over and said, David, you remember that promise you made to your friend Jonathan? Are you going to do something about it? There was nobody. It was David reflecting upon perhaps his friendship with Jonathan, reflecting upon the promises that he had made, and it came to mind. I made a promise, and I need to keep that promise. Is there anyone I can show kindness to for the sake of my friend Jonathan? David did not even know whether Jonathan had any descendants left. In the midst of all the turbulence of civil war, it wasn't clear whether anybody had survived in terms of the descendants of Jonathan. And it was very common, we must understand, it was very common in ancient dynasties, if you took the kingship from a previous house, a previous family, it was very important that you wiped out all the other descendants of that previous family. Because if you left them in 
alive, you, you risked a, a, another opportunity for them to come back, to take the kingdom. And so it was natural, if, if David was like the other kings of the ancient Near East, he would be, the question he would be asking is this, is there anyone left that I need to execute rather than to show kindness to? But the amazing thing, the grace of God at work in David's life, is he remembers the promise that he was to not cut off the descendants of Jonathan. And so David asks the question, and there's some investigation that takes place uh, concerning whether there's any descendants left. And so we find in verses 2 through 3, Ziba shows up. There was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? So Ziba appears before David. He's a former servant of Saul's. And David's question is this, Is there anyone left that I can show the kindness of God to? And I want to stop there with that phrase and dig into that phrase, the kindness of God. What does David mean by that? This is one of those instances where we do actually need to know a Hebrew word. Most of the time it's not that important that you know the Hebrew to be able to just study and read and and apply the Old Testament. But this is one of those cases where you you benefit from knowing the the word here. And, And some of you may know the word. It is the Hebrew word chesed. When David says, I want to show kindness, he says, I want to show the chesed of God to this descendant of Jonathan. And it's one of those words that's so important, it's so foundational, it's so valuable that we need to know something about this word. It's repeated hundreds of times in the Old Testament, uh, very importantly occurs so often. And you'll find in different translations, this word has different renderings. Sometimes you find it is translated mercy. Uh, sometimes it's translated kindness. Uh, sometimes it's translated steadfast love. That's usually the way the English Standard Version uh, renders the word. And I think perhaps my favorite translation, at least in most cases, is the phrase steadfast love. That's what I titled this message. And the reason that steadfast love is a good translation in particular is because this is a word that encompasses so much and especially emphasizes the fact that God has made covenant promises to his people. When we read about the steadfast love of God to his people, we're reading about a word that has commitment behind it. It it's definitely involves love. It definitely involves mercy and kindness and grace and all those other related synonyms that we so love. But especially the idea behind it is it is a love with commitment. It's a love that doesn't fail. And you'll find a particularly good example of how to understand this word in Psalm 136. It's that psalm, the one psalm in the Psalter, that has that repeated line after every other line, emphasizing again and again and again how God's love endures forever. And so I'll give you just a few verses from Psalm 136, verses 4 through 6. It says, To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love 
endures forever. And it goes on and on throughout the psalm. It talks about creation and redemption and providence and provision and all these things that God does for his people. And the psalmist wants you to know for sure that you do not doubt after 22 verses or so, God's love never fails. It always endures It's a covenant love. It's a love that doesn't give up. It's a love that never fails to fulfill its promises to the end. And God's steadfast love, his chesed love to us, can be contrasted, I think, with the very weak definitions of love that we are often confronted with in our culture today. We often get these definitions of love presented to us, of love that is here today and may very well be gone tomorrow of a love that has about the strength of a leaf blown away in the wind. You can never rely upon it because it is often defined as a love that is merely one of personal feelings. And if that's all that there is to love, then it falls so short of what God defines as his love towards his people. Imagine if God's love was here today and gone tomorrow. Would we have any confidence to come on the next Lord's Day, in glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we couldn't. We would not know whether he was favorable towards us anymore. And it's no surprise that fallen humanity would like to exalt a definition of love that allows us to prioritize our own self-interests above our commitments to others. How convenient it is if I can say, I love you today, but then if I don't feel like it tomorrow... I don't have to make an excuse for that. I just don't love anymore. And we're confronted by these very weak definitions. Such definitions of love are destructive to the true love of God that is presented in Scripture and the love that we as God's people are to reflect towards one another. Thankfully, we don't need to rely on our broken culture to provide definitions of love. We have a a much sturdier definition of love in Scripture uh, in the steadfast love of God. So going back to David's words, he says, I want to show the covenant love, the steadfast love of God to one of Saul's descendants. Now why does he say the steadfast love of God? Isn't this the love David's showing? Why does he say it's the steadfast love of God? I think what David is saying is that he wants to reflect the love of God towards someone else, that David is a recipient of the steadfast love of God, and I think he's saying, I want to show that kind of love, that kind of loyalty, that kind of faithfulness towards one of Saul's descendants, and Jonathan's descendants in particular. And the fact that this act of steadfast love is done by means of a promise or a commitment doesn't negate feeling. Sometimes we think, Uh, Because of our our cultural definitions, we think, well, it's either commitment or love. Which one is it? You either love by feeling or it's it's just duty. Well, no, the scriptures bring them together. We, We love and it is our duty, but we are drawn to love God. It's in our hearts. And it's the same in our marriages. Is it a duty to keep our covenant commitments in marriage? Absolutely it is. Is it to be done without affection? No, not at all. That's not what the scriptures present. And so I think David reflecting on his duty and reflecting upon his love for his friend Jonathan says, I need to show this kindness to any of the descendants of Jonathan. 
So David's concern here to keep his covenant promises is a remarkable example for us. It is, it is an example of where David is at his most Christ-like, I think, in his actions. And if the grace of God is at work in us, brothers and sisters, then we should have a sincere desire to keep our covenant obligations as well. We should have this desire that because we have been so graced by God, we have received so much love from God that it, it flows out of us to show love towards one another. Remember that there was no one that day chiding David to keep his promises. There was no one that day pressing upon him and pressing upon him and saying, David, you need to keep your promises. You haven't done anything about that. It was out of the spontaneous desire of David to fulfill what he had said. And David had made this covenant before God. That's another important point. Back to 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 42. There, when Jonathan and David were speaking to one another as they parted ways, listen to what Jonathan said to David. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Yes, it's true, there was no human authority, it seems, holding David to keep his promises, telling David to keep his promises, but there was a much higher authority that witnessed his promises, and it was the Lord God. This covenant that they had made together was a promise made in the sight of God, and it was God who would hold him to account for that promise. And so it is with our covenant obligations. There's only a few contexts in modern life where we make vows or oaths, but of course marriage is one of those where we make a vow in the presence of God. And we make that vow as a particularly solemn obligation that we're binding ourselves to and we're saying, God, you hold me to account on this commitment I am making. Sometimes we take vows in terms of church membership as well. We, we uh, covenantally obligate ourselves to the body of Christ and the duties that go with that obligation. And as we are growing by the grace of God, then we also should be those who hold fast to our commitments, even when it's hard. It can be hard in marriage to keep our vows. It can be hard in the body of Christ to keep our membership vows to the body of Christ. But this is a key test of true love for us, brothers and sisters. Will you be a covenant keeper or a covenant breaker? Will you keep your marriage vows in sickness and in health, in times of distress, in times of personal conflict and in difficulty? Will you be the one who keeps your vows to the body of Christ to love the Lord Jesus, to love the brothers and sisters for whom Christ died, to patiently overlook offenses committed against you, to walk in that love that bears all things, that believes all things, endures all things, and hopes all things? It's challenging for us how we often have to cry out, Lord, make me stronger in love. Make me to keep that which I have promised. And that's my prayer that God would do that in us, his people, that we would be a people, a church of Jesus that reflects his steadfast love to the world. That people would see that light set on a hill and say, those Christians keep their word. Those Christians, they keep their promises. They love to the end. And it shows the world something of what Jesus has done for us. So we've seen David's commitment to steadfast love. He's going to show this kindness. Now we come to the account of Mephibosheth himself in verses 4 through 6. 
So the king said to Ziba, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, and Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him to the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, here is your servant. Now let's sum up what we learn about this man in this description to get a a sense of the picture that we're given here of what this man's life is like. At five years old, he's dropped by his nurse, crippled in both legs all of his life since that time. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, died, Mephibosheth, likely around that time, went into hiding across the Jordan River. As the Civil War was unfolding, he wanted to get to a place of safety. And being a cripple, uh, you're not going to be in a very good place to run when the enemy comes. You need to be far removed from such a situation. He lives in an obscure place. He he lives outside of the the realm of God's covenant people in terms of the land. He's not within the the land that God had promised to his people. And he lives in a place called Lodabar. Uh, there, this word, this, this title given to this, this place, uh, can have a few different meanings, but in Hebrew it, it more or less means nothing. No place. <laughs> it, it, the word Dabar is word, and then lo means not. It's, 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 it's as if it's saying it's nowheresville. He, he doesn't live anywhere significant. He uh, lives across the river in nowheresville. Mephibosheth had not lived an easy life for the last 20 years. He's dependent upon others to to carry him, lives outside of Israel, lives perhaps in some degree of fear that he's going to be killed, perhaps, by by David, if David is out for revenge against the house of Saul. And so imagine you're Mephibosheth, and one day the summons comes. You've been discovered. Ziba said to David, oh, I know where he is. One day, those messengers of David, they come to your little house in Lodabar, and they say, David has summoned you to his presence. You're needed in Jerusalem. You need to come immediately. What would he have thought? All this time, probably in fear, we know he was afraid to some degree. He seems to come fearfully uh, to David. Was he being called to answer for the sins of his grandfather Saul? Was David making sure that there was no descendants left in order to ensure that there was no risk of somebody trying to make Mephibosheth a puppet king in the future. And so we see how helpless Mephibosheth is, how, how he has a weak and a lowly condition before David. And I think if you take all of this together, you see how Mephibosheth is a perfect example of our helpless and fearful condition apart from the mercy of Jesus Christ. Like Mephibosheth, our sinful condition makes us helpless. We're crippled. More than that, Ephesians 2 says we're dead in trespasses and sins apart from the grace of God. We are absolutely helpless apart from the mercy of God in Christ. Like Mephibosheth, our sins have exiled us from the king's presence. We're across the river. We're, we're, not, we're not in his presence. We're not at his table apart from the mercy of God. Like Mephibosheth, we don't have hope for the future apart from the mercy of God. Paul says to the Ephesians, you were without hope and without God in the world. That's like what Mephibosheth's situation was. And like Mephibosheth, we may fear, or we should fear, appearing in the presence of the king. 
if we do not have the blood of Christ covering us, that fearful day of judgment when we're summoned to the throne. That's our natural fallen condition, weak, helpless, afraid, heading towards a a fearful judgment, but that is not what Mephibosheth received that day, did he? He could have expected that he was summoned unto judgment, but he was not summoned unto judgment that day. He got more than just survival. Instead, he received a lavish inheritance from the king. And more than just an inheritance, he received a relationship with King David. And so look in verse 7 now, as David speaks to Mephibosheth. David said to him, Do not fear. For I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. David's first words to Mephibosheth are revealing. He says, don't be afraid. That means he knew. We know that Mephibosheth was expressing fear of some kind. may have been trembling on his knees before David. David knew the position that Mephibosheth was in, but he says, don't be afraid because I have summoned you not to harm, not unto judgment, but I have summoned you to give kindness to you, to show love to you. And so it is with our our King Jesus, brothers and sisters. He he summons us to himself, not unto judgment, but he he summons us to take his yoke upon us because it is a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. He he invites us to mercy. He says to us in the gospel, him who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Anyone who draws near to me will be received. If they come in faith, if they come in humility and in repentance. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The invitation of King Jesus to us is an invitation of mercy. And with that mercy then comes that sense of rest and peace. He says, I'm going to give this yoke to you. I'm going to bind myself, bind you to me, but it will be a yoke that is like me. It's a gentle and lowly yoke. It's an easy yoke to carry. You've been carrying this this yoke, this slavery of sin, but I have such a better yoke for you. And so David, he, he begins to explain to Mephibosheth all that he's going to give to him. He says, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. And then in verses 9 through 10, he, he adds to this, The king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's sons may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So apparently there was this land that had been granted to Saul's family. Perhaps it was originally the land of Kish, uh, Saul's, Saul's father. And it had perhaps been taken in the midst of all that civil war. And so David says, that portion of land I'm going to give to you. I'm going to restore it to you, Mephibosheth. But there is a problem. Mephibosheth is a cripple. How is he going to take care of this land himself? 
How is he going to farm? How is he going to tend to things? How is he uh, going to take care of the crop? Well, David takes that into account too. David takes care of it all. He says, I'll take care of that. I will provide to you all of Ziba's sons and Ziba's servants. They are going to work the land for you. It's an amazing inheritance that David gives. It's an undeserved gift of favor and gift of an inheritance to Mephibosheth, who doesn't deserve anything necessarily outside of the fact that there's this promise that's been made. Now at this point, I, I want us to observe that David is going above and beyond his promise that he made to Jonathan. Now you remember the words we read in 1 Samuel 20. Now if you look literally at the words of 1 Samuel 20, all that David said was that he wasn't going to cut off the descendants of Jonathan. That isn't that hard. He doesn't have to give him anything necessarily to fulfill the literal words of his promise. If David was thinking along the lines of, what is the bare minimum I can do to keep my promise? He could have just left Mephibosheth and Lodabar. I mean, he's alive, right? But David isn't thinking about the bare minimum. David is saying, I want to, sh- I want to reflect the steadfast love of God to this man. Well, and the steadfast love of God is better than just leaving us alive. It's true that God, God gives us life. But, but God gives us even more than that. He, he gives us this amazing inheritance. God's love does far more than just give us mere existence. Barely surviving. It's not like God calls us into fellowship with him and then he, he has us on this spiritual bread and water regimen as if we're in prison still. No, he, he gives us a bountiful inheritance. God's love and displaying his covenant to his people is it's rich, it's bountiful. I mean, think about the promised land itself. That's a physical picture of God's inheritance for his people. He says, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. And as we think about that spiritually, there's all different kinds of ways as well in which God's grace abounds towards us, his people, and goes above and beyond just mere existence. Think of Ephesians chapter 2, that remarkable chapter on the grace of God, something of which we sung earlier uh, in the song, uh, The Grace of God. And listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. He's describing how rich God has been to us. God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So what Ephesians 2 tells us, Paul says, is you've come out of a state of death and sin You've been raised up, you've been seated with Christ, and now it's going to take all of eternity to show you the immeasurable riches of God's grace toward you. All of eternity, it's going to keep going and going and going as he shows those riches to you. And so we can see how David is reflecting that kind of pattern. Yes, it's a far lesser pattern, but it is that pattern of God's steadfast love, which is bountiful, it's generous towards us, his people. 
Jesus, in John chapter 14, as he's preparing for his crucifixion, he gives his disciples a preview of this inheritance. He says, I have something stored up for you that is amazing. John 14, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And one of that, what we see here is one of the aspects of our inheritance that's freely granted to us is that we have a home with the Lord, described in John chapter 14. Much like David brought Mephibosheth into the fellowship of his house. Yes, David had this land, but, but David says, or, John, or Mephibosheth had this land, but David says, you're going to eat at my table. You are going to be in fellowship with me, in relationship with me. Uh, verse 13 of our chapter, Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table. We would already say David is generous. If he had given Mephibosheth life, if he had given Mephibosheth land and servants, we'd say, David, that is remarkably generous and loving of you to do to this man Mephibosheth. But he says, I'm going to go further than that. You will eat at my table like any of my other sons would. Anytime, every day, you are welcome at my table. Throughout human history, fellowship over a meal is a very important sign of relationship. There's a reason scripture so often speaks about a meal being the context of relationship, communion, fellowship with one another. We all understand this, and kids understand this too, about their identity in the family. They know they're a member of the family. And kids, when you come to dinner at night, do you, do you wonder whether mom and dad will set out a place at the table for you? Are you fearful? Are you thinking, maybe they're not going to feed me tonight? No, if your mom and dad are, are, are good parents and loving parents, they always set a place at the table for you. You're always welcome at the table. And so you don't have to doubt. You don't have to question, say, am I really a member of this family? You don't come to the table and your parents say, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have enough room for you tonight, uh, maybe tomorrow you can join us at the meal. We'll see about it. No, if you're a son or daughter, you're assured a place of fellowship at the table. You know you can come. There's no doubt about it. And so it was when David invited Mephibosheth to dine continually at his table. He's in essence saying, Mephibosheth, I'm adopting you into my family. You're just like one of my sons now. Anytime you want to eat, join me at my table. You're part of the family now. What a privilege this crippled man now had. Uh, He had come fearfully. He had come wondering uh, what this would mean, but he had now received something that he could have never imagined receiving before. And when it is that the grace of God in the gospel comes to us, we have to reflect for years after and continually what an amazing thing the Lord has done in my life to call me to himself to bring me into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. And the the, uh, passage uh, that often comes to mind here as we think about the the lame and the crippled and uh, as as Mephibosheth is, is a parable that Jesus told, which I'd like to point point out to you. It's the parable that we often call the parable of the Great Supper. 
And it's in Luke 14, and I'll read verse 15 first to give you the context of this parable that Jesus told. Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And so this was an individual there that was reflecting upon the blessing it will be that uh, a fellowship over a meal in the consummated kingdom of God, what amazing privilege that will be. That's what the comment was about. And Jesus says, well, this is a good opportunity to tell a parable in response to that comment. And so Jesus goes on to tell a parable, and I'll summarize part of it that I'm not going to read. What happens is that a feast is prepared by this master, and he sends all these invitations out. All these invitations go out, and everybody responds with a decline. They say, no, thank you. I'm, I'm busy with other things. I can't come. And they have some excuse of, well, I'm getting married, or I'm going to go buy this field and buy these cattle, and I just can't make it. And the master's thinking, I, I've set out this amazing feast. Why won't anybody come? And so what does the master do? Well, he tells his servants what to do in Luke 14, 21 through 23. He says, all these people I invited didn't want to come, so I guess we're just going to have to find some other people. Verse 21, that servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor, and the maimed, and the lame, and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it's done as you commanded, and there still is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. Now, often with Jesus' parables, we're not given a direct interpretation of what it means. So we have to study the context, of course, and think through why is Jesus bringing this out. And I I would argue that one of the reasons Jesus brings this contrast out is because often his own people, the Jews and the Pharisees especially, rejected him. He was presenting to them a feast. He was saying, come, uh, buy wine and drink freely, as, as Isaiah prophesied elsewhere. He says, come to this feast. And they're like, I don't want to come. Not interested. So he says, okay, I'm going to have to get some others. And where does Jesus go as we study the Gospels? He, he goes to, he often goes, of course, to the physically maimed. He heals people, heals those that are demon-possessed, those that are blind, those that are crippled. But in that all is a, a spiritual lesson for us. And it's that God calls to himself the humble. That's one of the points of Luke 14, is that he calls to himself those who know they are crippled. Those who know their Mephibosheth-like condition, he says, come to the feast and I will feed you freely. There's no cost, there's no qualification, it's just, hey, it's a free feast. I would imagine that if you're crippled and hungry, you would want something, right? And so it is in the call of the gospel. The gospel presents to us, it says, here is a savior for sinners, who will come? Well, those that think of themselves as righteous won't come. But if we see ourselves in our true needy condition and we are poor in spirit, then we're going to hunger and thirst for such a Savior. And so I think that's another lesson that that emerges from the narrative as we think about how are we like Mephibosheth naturally in each case. Well, we've seen so many parallels between this narrative and the gospel because David wanted to show the steadfast love of God. And I, I do want to close with a few applications that direct this towards how our love should be reflective of that. How, how do we love like God loves? 
what does it make our love look like if it's patterned after the steadfast love of God? So there's uh, particularly two applications for you here. And I want to read to you 1 John chapter 4 just to frame this whole point of application. 1 John 4 verse 10, John says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so that foundational point that the gospel establishes, as as we are a church, as a, a gospel community, we are founded upon this. Beloved, we did not love God, but God loved us. Now, in light of that, in light of that immeasurable love, let us love one another. And so if we say, how do I pattern my love after the love of God? I I know I won't ever love to the extent that God loves. My love is not perfected. What does it look like, though? Well, the first point is this. Just as God's steadfast love in Christ is shown to undeserving sinners like you and me, so we are not called to show love on the basis of merit. We, We are called to show love to those who don't deserve love. Our Lord Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount calls us to this challenge. You remember how he said, he says, if you're going to be my people, the city set upon a hill to be different than the world, you can't just be like everybody else that only loves those who love you. He says, that's, that's natural. There's nothing impressive about that, to love those who love you. It's good to love those who love you, but it's not, in a, it's not a supernatural thing. What he says is, you should... Show love to your enemies. He calls us to this much higher standard than what is naturally amongst human relationships. He says, show love to those you would consider your enemies. Sometimes we hear the word enemy and we think, I wouldn't use the word enemy towards uh, a fellow brother or sister in in the church, for example. Maybe we can certainly think of other relationships that we would uh, use the word enemy to. But just think of the the word enemy in a broader sense of the one that you're struggling to love right now, uh, or the one who's not very loving to you. And if we think of it in that way, uh, those who mistreat you, those who offend you, those who hurt you, the call of Scripture, according to Ephesians 4, is this, especially directed to the church of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling of with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. And so especially as we apply this to the body of Christ, first of all, are we those that bear with one another in love, despite the offense, despite the mistreatment, that we keep on loving? That's a challenge for us. We're often weak in it. I've seen it in our own congregation when Uh, A conflict arises, wow, how we are tested on our love and whether we will keep going, whether we will keep this steadfast love uh, towards one another, and we need the grace of God to enable us to do that. To not show love just on the basis of those who love us, but to go above and beyond. So that's the first point. Our love is, is not towards those who deserve it, not towards those who have merited it, not towards those who are just loving us, but above and beyond that. Secondly, just as God's steadfast love involves an overflowing abundance, an overflowing generosity, our love should also demonstrate that same overflowing generosity. God showers upon us immeasurable riches. He isn't stingy. 
toward his people. God is not like somebody that you might think of. Whether Maybe you'll think of this illustration as, as you. Maybe it's in the past or maybe it's somebody you know in the present. That person that would never part with $20. They just couldn't part with $20 for anything because they are so stingy. They're so ungenerous. Well, God is the complete and infinite opposite of that. He is not stingy toward his people. He showers upon us his grace and his kindness and continually does so despite the fact that we sin against him. And so if our love would reflect the steadfast love of God, it needs to overflow. Just as David, he went above and beyond the promise. He says, what else could I do for this man? How else could I love this man? Oh, may we do the same. May we be generous with our love. One of the ways we have to be generous with our love is generous with forgiveness. Remember when Jesus, uh, the disciples asked, you know, they thought they were really impressive when Peter said, shall I forgive my brother seven times? Shall I be so generous as to forgive him seven times? And Jesus says, Peter, oh, I have something far bigger for you here. Seventy times seven, Peter, far above that. Be generous with your forgiveness. Generous, of course, in other ways. We, we need to be generous with our time and the giving of it to others. Generous with our, our money that God has given us. We are called to this overflowing generosity that demonstrates the steadfast love of God. And, and Jesus speaks of this in Luke 12. He says, sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor Moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we often, we often discover our hearts when, it, when we find an opportunity to love others. Where is our heart? Is it, it is, a, is it a heart drawn to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it a heart drawn to love those outside of the body of Christ? Or is it stingy? May it be that we reflect the steadfast love of God that David showed to Mephibosheth that day. And may we better understand and appreciate the kindness of God toward us. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, you have been so good to us. You have shown great mercy to your people and giving us your Son, who is our Lord, our Savior, our High Priest, our King, and our Friend. We thank you that we have the privilege, just as David invited Mephibosheth to dine at his table, we also have the privilege to dine together at the Lord's table now. We thank you that you have given us an amazing inheritance that you've promised to us. Just as David promised all these things to Mephibosheth, you have given us an eternal inheritance. We ask in light of this example uh, that we would walk in steadfast love. Help us to be those who are faithful to our commitments, to be those who uh, keep our word. We desire your help, Lord, that you would make us those people who, who love our enemies, who love and keep on loving, and who are generous towards others. Grant us your grace, Lord, that we might